0: Okay. Uh, good morning. Um, excellent. Uh, so, um, welcome to uh, All Saints. And um, if you were down at the memorial and you've come up to here now, welcome to you. Um, so this is Remembrance Sunday, and we look back on the catastrophic conflicts of the past. Um, Mark mentioned the number of deaths in the various world wars, just unimaginable figures. Um, and so many lives would have been affected, were and are affected by those conflicts. And the particularly the Second World War, the, the ripples of that are still rippling through our society and the world today. So I'm going to talk about hope today. And I'm going to mention a couple of stories um, which, in their own ways, are quite serious stories, as you'll see. Um, and and I, I guess this is quite a serious time, Remembrance Sunday, what we're remembering. So, so this is uh, Srebrenica, and it's in Bosnia and Herzegovina, near the border of Serbia. And... You may remember that uh, it was part of a country known as Yugoslavia, uh, and that country was torn apart in a civil war in the early 1990s. And Bosnia-Herzegovina itself was uh, various factions rose to take different parts of the country, so many people fled in fear to different places. And Srebrenica was one of those... Uh, places and this picture you can see Srebrenica in the background and all these um, graves in front and other ones there come from that time and so a, a, a UN general uh, came to Srebrenica um, when the sort of the fear and the pressures were on and the people um, they they didn't want the general to leave at the end the United Nations General because they were afraid what was going to happen, and begged him to stay. And so sort of unilaterally, without sort of UN authority, he declared that Srebrenica was um, going to be protected by the United Nations. And as a result, afterwards, the United Nations had to formalize that and create other safe havens for people. So he he, he said that, and some peacekeepers were deployed. Um, but the town was besieged by the Bosnian Serb forces, and in July 1995, they entered, and they, they, they said to the people, the town, they said, uh, "Lay down all your weapons and surrender. Um, all people, all fighting men. So people above 12 and above." Uh, and they did that, um, but on then, just hor- horrifically, all of uh, the Bosnian Muslim males of 12 years and up were rounded up and summarily executed over a three-day period. And estimates are more than 8,000 people were killed and over 25,000 women, children and the elderly were forced to leave. And it's the worst genocide on European soil since the Second World War. So sobering stuff. Um, Again, as we see, the echoes of that are very real and visceral for the survivors and uh, loved ones and families. And when I was at, at university, um, I studied some of the case reports that came out of Srebrenica in war crimes tribunals that happened afterwards. And in Srebrenica, there was this uh, young man um, on a street, and he'd lived in Srebrenica all his life. And he was a Bosnian Serb. Um, uh, around him, his neighbors were Bosnian Muslims. He wasn't a soldier. He wasn't in the militia. He was from a, a, a normal, stable family. And when, when the town fell in July 1995, he went on a, a killing spree, murdering his Muslim neighbors. And when I read this story at university, I think I had this um, optimistic view of humanity. I'd like to think that humans... Um, you know, we're, we're a noble creature. Um, we strive to live in a good way. And we can flourish in creativity. But I read stories like that and I was thinking there's this darkness. A horrible darkness. And it, it just fills me with this sort of existential fear that perhaps my outlook is wrong. Is there hope? Are we a noble creature? So, so we're looking at hope at the moment in our sermon series, uh, Culture of Hope. And hope's a really important thing. So psychological research has shown that a lack of hope can eventually lead to severe mental health issues. It can even shorten your life if you're in a very hopeless situation. And I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear this word hope. And it's a potent word, hope. And it's often used by politicians when they're campaigning. I've got a quote here from... Barack Obama, when he was running for U.S. president in 2008, where he's using this, this idea of hope, um, this concept, to uh, encourage a movement, to put their faith in him to be leaders. And I'm sure in this election cycle, we're going to hear similar things of where we should place our hope uh, in our people who are vying for be our representatives and how in them they'll make things better. So that's a very strong um, expression of what hope means in our culture. And Hope is a Remembrance Sunday for me, brings back um, some of the hopefulness after the Second World War. And our society, we, we'd survived. As a, as a country, we'd survived this terrible thing. And there was definitely a, a galvanizing force to create a, a better, better society, with the creation of the NHS, uh, national parks, um, legal aid, <laughs> all these things to name a few. Um, and hope's also a very personal very personal thing. Uh, hope that our situations and our lives can improve. If things are difficult, hope maybe you love sport, hope that you hope that your sporting team will win. If you have children, hope that they'll be able to grow up and find their place in society find their definition in Christ. And all said and done, though, I come back to that young man in Srebrenica. You know, do we have reasons to be hopeful in ourselves? And what does God have to say about all this? So the Bible is is, is very gritty. And it's very real about the human condition. And so not surprisingly, as a psychologist would say, it has something to say about Hope. So just just first, the, the word hope in, in Hebrew has two meanings. One is of, of waiting, and one is sort of tense um, anticipation or expectation. So the, the image is often of like a a cord that's been stretched. So those are the images in the Bible which gets translated into hope in our Bibles. So we're going to look at that. So the reading was from um, Isaiah, and uh, it's... As I was around, he was alive about 740, 700 BC. And it's quite a turbulent time for the Jewish people. So I really love uh, ancient maps, even though they're pretty uh, indecipherable. <laughs> so this, is, this here is of the um, Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great. And uh, sort of around that time before, the uh, various nations were, were threatening uh, Israel from, from the north, so initially it was the Assyrians in the sort of 700s and, and, and 600s, and the Assyrians were um, a very aggressive military force with a like, brutal reputation, and so they were attacking uh, the north of Israel, and, and eventually it fell, leaving the kingdom Judah to the south. And, and Isaiah had prophesied that, that the kingdoms of Israel and Judah would fall as a consequence of judgment. But so Israel fell initially, but Judah endured. And as anyway, is often the way. The Assyrian Empire was suddenly defeated by the Babylonians, who came sort of whipping around from Babylon. And they actually put Jerusalem under siege. And it fell in 586 BC. So this is the context for Isaiah 43. This is the context that Jerusalem had fallen and the, the 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 people were being taken away by the Babylonians. And I wonder if you can put yourself, try and put yourself in your imagination into the minds of the Jewish people at the time. So you've been going through a couple of hundred years of the threat of war, stories of brutal foreign armies, lives turned upside down, your husband and sons could have been killed in their various conflicts, had weak, not very good rulers, and the prophets at the time were announcing God's judgment. This was happening because of God's judgment. So I'm sure that the, the fear would have been very visceral and all-consuming. And finally there was another prophet from the time, Ezekiel, and he'd had this, this, this vision of the, the temple where God lived with his people. And the vision of the presence of God leaving the temple and going away, and that was just a shattering thing theologically for the Jewish people at the time—that God's presence was leaving them. And the back end of this chapter, forty-three, um, the verses today, it's almost like it's God is on trial. God is on trial—is—is—is is, is he weak compared to the gods of the Babylonians? So, you know, life. We're not under the sort of, our country isn't under military threat at the moment, although it has been, as we know, over the last hundred years. But life can be like this for us. You know, we can have fears of the other people. You know, we're quite tribal humans. We can kind of demonize other people. We can have fears of other people who are different from us. We can have uncertainties in our, our lives. You know, we can't lose our job. We might retire. I'm not really sure what what to do next? We can fall ill. You know, people that we love die. We can we can fear failure. I was saying this morning that when I was talking that um, I was a rendezvous leader, which is the youth group for teenagers in this church, for many years. And one of the things that I came to realise is that it seems to be that fear in young people is becoming. More part of who they are. And defining their lives. And I remember one of the, um people at Rendezvous, and she was really stressed, and I was saying to her, what are you worried about? And she was telling me that she was really worried about her exam results not being right. And if she didn't get the right ex- results, she felt that she'd be a failure as a person, and that's her life over. And this, this fear, it just was like wrapped around, around her, and reducing her as a a person. You know, maybe we feel lonely in life, and we might even doubt God now and wonder if he's effective. So as the Jews trudged off to exile to Babylon, the book of Isaiah was opened, and they read these words in chapter 43, which Sarah read today. I don't know if you've got it open. These are just astonishing words. And I mean, first of all, I'd say these are words where of grace. So the Jews can do nothing about their situation. They can't, they're not going to be able to defeat the Babylonians. But God is saying, I will do, I will do these things. I will bring you back. I will save you. You can't earn it. You can't make it happen. Words of grace. God is doing it. In these verses, we see that God will be with them in these difficult times. Images of fire, of water. God will be with them. And God identifies who he is, his character to them, as their savior. And he says that one day, he will bring them back and restore them to their homeland and be their king. And people will see that he is the one true God through what he does in their lives. It also talks about how nations will be sacrificed. Almost picture language. And God's saying there that he's willing to give any price to ransom and rescue his own. These are the words that the Jews have heard as they were taken away. And this is biblical hope. It's not hope in ourselves. It's not about being optimistic that you sort of look at your situation and think it's okay or it might get better. It's not about being an extrovert personality. It's about putting your hope in God that God will see his promises through, will not abandon his people despite all their flaws and failings, will rescue his people And establish himself as the one true God above all others. So these were the words of comfort to the Jews. As they were taken away, sustaining them as they were in exile. So hope is about putting faith in God solely. In his character. And his promises to make all things right. And to uphold the promises he's made to be committed to his people. And this is the same God today (laughs) as back then. I don't know where you are. Maybe you are in a hopeless situation or things are difficult. Maybe you're remembering people who've died in your life. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you doubt God. Maybe you're afraid of climate change. Maybe you're wondering, can this country get some politicians who are going to show us good leadership? So the story went on. Eventually the Babylonian kingdom came to an end and the Persians, who we see up there, took over under this leader called Cyrus. And he allowed the Jews to return. And it looked like Isaiah 43 was happening. As he came back, back from exile. Things were still not quite right. They were still ruled by foreign powers. They weren't an independent nation. God wasn't obviously in charge. He hadn't come back to the temple in, in Jerusalem. There were foreign powers that arose afterwards. Alexander the Great, you may have heard of. And eventually, the, the Romans. So the hope that the people had been established as a nation, with God as their king, still not happened. But the Bible had talked about, the Old Testament, God returning in person to make his people, to make things all right. So they were still in this tense expectation, this tense anticipation. So now we come to um, Galilee, in the early part of the first century. And there was this young, itinerant um, man going about the place. You may have heard of who he was. (laughs) Um, I'm just going to share some words from Mark about this uh, individual. So Mark starts, the beginning of the good news about jesus the messiah then it goes on oh, jesus started his ministry that so jesus went into galilee proclaiming the good news the euangelion the announcement and said this is it this is the gospel now <laughs> the time has come the kingdom of god has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So this was again Isaiah 43 happening. The kingdom was being established. Jesus was announcing that God was becoming king. Where all things will start to be put right. The way God works is unexpected. As Jesus continued in his ministry and life, his followers came to see that he was the Jewish Messiah. But God's kingdom was like nothing else, not any human kingdoms. And the hope spoken of in the Old Testament, the waiting, the tense expectation, was redefined on Jesus. He incarnated hope, a living hope. As Mark said earlier, people came to him, were healed, redeemed, had their sins forgiven, were loved dearly. He was popular with ordinary folk. As you probably know the story today, Jesus confronted the power structures, the Jewish leaders and the might of the Roman Empire and the dark powers sitting behind these human institutions. And he was crucified and seemingly the hope that was been put in him was dashed. But we're here today, all of us, in this building, in a country built on Judeo-Christian values, because it was not the end. Jesus was resurrected. The hope placed in him could not be overcome. And on that day, in the garden, the first day of the week, new creation started the great promise in the Bible that God would one day make all things new started in Jesus. And this message of Jesus, as you know, in the letters of Paul uh, and in history spread throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. It crossed ethnic divides. It redefined what was to be a human, to be a man, a woman, and a child. It turned upside down social hierarchies. New communities arose radically different to the cultures around them. Peter talks about them being a living hope, living as new humans. They cared for the poor and the widows. They loved and stuck by one another. They bore with each other when they fell out with each other. They forgave. Even under persecution, they stuck to each other. They knew the kingdom of God had not been fully established. It had been started but not consummated. The waiting and tense anticipation continues. And we are these, that community now, the church. We are the ones in that waiting and tense anticipation. So where does that leave us? So I started one story about the young man in Srebrenica, my existential darkness about what it is to be human. So I'll move on to one other story, so, this chap is a guy called Frederick von Balderschwing, the younger. <laughs> I think that's right. So, um, so, he was a Christian pastor and theologian in Germany. Um, and his father had set up what's known as a Bethel community, which is still a thing today, for um, originally for epileptic girls in the late 18th century. And it, it developed throughout the 19th century, and more um, people who were um, mentally ill or had conditions um, joined this community and were cared for. And hospitals were built there, and schools, and church, and lots of staff. And Frederick took up the running of it when his dad died in 1910. And you might have heard of a chap called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So he visited that community in the 1930s. When the, um, a new power was coming forth in Germany, and he talked about this place as a fairy tale landscape of grace, the very antithesis of the rising Nazi worldview. And as the Nazis rose to power, Frederick was appalled at what they stood for. The Nazi worldview of the pure race had no place for the people he was caring for. In fact, those two people were taken away by the Nazis together with the Jews and systematically mercy killed. And Frederick and his staff resisted the Nazis, and I've put a quote from there. What he said at the time: "They visited him. The Nazis wants him to fill in forms about who was there, and he refused to. He refused to. And his patients were not taken away." as the Second World War raged, he endured in his community. So this is what hope in Jesus cultivates. It it messes with us. It, It changes us. It's not about going to... The hope is not about thinking my hope is based on what happens when I die. It's gritty. It's real. And it's incarnating... Into the now, whilst looking intense expectation to the new heavens and new earth. So, all of us here, you can put your hope in Jesus, the God of the Old Testament, who Jesus embodied and revealed fully to us. Pure life, and you feel hopeless, a bit like the Jews in chapter 43 of Isaiah. You can choose to put your hope in the character of God and be in that waiting and tense expectation. We can incarnate hope as new humans by placing our hope in Jesus, in his life, death and resurrection. Our country is bitter. It's politically divided. There is fear in us that gets preyed on by our culture around us, fear in our young people. We can be disappointed by our representatives and leaders. Biblical hope speaks directly into this, a new way of being human, that God is looking to put things right and that one day all will be put right, the new heavens and new earth. The hope in the Bible, end of um, Corinthians, the amazing poem about love it talks about hope being eternal. It will be fully realized in new heavens and new earth. At that time, our hope will be complete in understanding and resting in God's character. For us now, we get to live in that hope like Frederick and the people and his staff. So the answer to my doubt about Srebrenica is yes. Humans do have darkness in them, but Jesus, by his grace, believes in us and declares and puts his hope in us. And he wants to incarnate hope into your lives and out into the world. A world that needs this hope just as much now as it did in the 1940s. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that when all seems hopeless and lost and times are difficult that you hold out these words to us in Isaiah. That you'll be with us through the fire and the water. That you are the saviour. That you will give anything to ransom And rescue us. I thank you Lord for the early church communities showing us the living hope. And I thank you Lord for the Bethel community and Pastor Frederick, which shows us what that hope can mean in awful, trying situations. Thank you Lord that you are our last ditch. That you are our last offence. Thank you, Lord, that that is available to all of us now. Amen.